The third fruit of the Spirit, the third quality of Christ's likeness that we're going to study is that of peace. When we come to this quality, this virtue, however, we face a dilemma, much like we did when we talked about love. This word peace, it's a word that we use so frequently, so commonly that sometimes it's unclear exactly what we mean by it. Most often, we tend to think of peace in one of two different ways. Sometimes we think of it negatively, simply as the absence of conflict or dispute. It's often what people mean when they talk about peace between nations, that there's an end or a prevention of conflict or war. That's why in 1973, people like Henry Kissinger and Le Duc Tho were given a Nobel Peace Prize for negotiating a cease fire in Vietnam. It's why that same Peace Prize has been given to organizations who are working to seek for nuclear disarmament, to prevent war. It's why therapists sometimes, when they're talking about roles in family systems, they'll sometimes talk about the peacemaker as the person who mediates and helps the family to avoid conflict. That's one way of thinking about peace, as the absence of conflict. More positively, sometimes we think of peace not so much as an absence of conflict in the outer world, but as an emotional or psychological state of being in the inner world. We talk about inner peace, especially you hear this term for people who work in positive psychology. As one psychotherapist put it in her recent book on this subject, inner peace is a deep and abiding sense of contentment and tranquility. At its fullest expression, deep inner peace is a response to life that is independent of external circumstances. With practice, you can learn to quickly leave the choppy wild waves at the surface and dive into the calm deep. Of course, modern psychologists are not the first to recognize the importance of this kind of peace. Church fathers like St. Jerome regularly talked about a condition of peace as one in which we are neither led around by external circumstances or by our own internal passions. Jerome says that we should not suppose that peace is limited to not quarreling with others. Rather, the peace of Christ is with us when the mind is at peace and undisturbed by conflicting emotions. But which is it that we're talking about when we talk about this fruit of the Spirit? Is it the absence of conflict, or is it the presence of some kind of inner personal tranquility and calm amid whatever chaos and conflict might be going on outside? Well, when you look at the life of Jesus, it's pretty clear that both of these do play an important role. On the one hand, Jesus certainly does teach his followers to choose peace over conflict. He tells them famously in Matthew chapter 5 not to return evil for evil, but to turn the other cheek when they are wronged. Later on, when Jesus himself is arrested and Peter takes up a sword and strikes one of the crowd who came to arrest him, Jesus says to Peter, put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Now, whether or not Jesus would have won a Nobel Peace Prize, he certainly did teach his followers to pursue peace over conflict. And it's also true that Jesus seemed to possess a remarkable sense of inner peace. 
It's one of the things that caused the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, to marvel at him when Pilate was interrogating him. No matter what Pilate said or how he threatened him, Jesus seemed to remain calm and serene in the face of it all. No doubt a modern psychologist would say that Jesus really had achieved a remarkable state of inner peace. But when Paul speaks of peace here in Galatians, and when the Bible speaks more broadly about peace, it means something more substantial than either of these two options. To understand this, it's helpful to pay attention not just to the Greek word that Paul uses in Galatians, the word irene, but also to how that word is used more broadly in the Bible. In the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the word irene, the word peace, is most often used to translate the Hebrew word shalom. And that word shalom, it plays a big role in shaping how Paul thinks of peace. So what is shalom? Well, first thing to say is shalom doesn't just refer to individual inner peace, but it also doesn't just refer to the absence of conflict. Shalom includes that, but it goes beyond it as well. To talk about shalom is to talk about a kind of harmony and flourishing. Shalom refers to a condition in which people are living in perfect and harmonious relationship both with God and with one another, and even with nature itself. And it's not just living, but really living well, living into the purpose for which God has created them, thriving, you could say. All of this is built up into the concept of shalom. As one philosopher puts it, the peace that is shalom is not merely the absence of hostility, not merely being in right relationship. Shalom at its highest is enjoyment in one's relationships. To dwell in shalom is to enjoy living before God, to enjoy living in one's surroundings, to enjoy living with one's fellows, to enjoy life with oneself. And that's one of the reasons that the Bible so frequently connects peace with both righteousness and joy. Take Proverbs 12, verse 20, for instance. Deceit is in the heart of those who devise evil, but those who plan peace have joy. Or Isaiah 32, verses 16 and 17. Then justice will dwell in the wilderness, and righteousness abide in the fruitful field. And the effect of righteousness will be peace, and the result of righteousness, quietness and trust forever. Well, why is peace so intimately connected with righteousness and joy? Well, it's because, as that philosopher said, true peace, shalom, consists not only in living in a harmonious relationship with God and with others, in right relation with people, but also living in such a way that brings real joy. And this is a wonderful vision of life, more wonderful, in fact, than most people would dare to dream. It sounds too utopian almost. So how do we attain it? How can we experience this wonderful, incredible state of shalom in our own lives? Well, when we look at what the Apostle Paul has to say to this question, he really gives a twofold answer. On the one hand, Paul will say that peace isn't something that we achieve, 
but it is instead something which God creates and grants to us as a gift. But then, on the other hand, Paul also describes peace as a way of life that we are called to pursue in our relationship with one another. And we can't really understand how peace is a quality of Christ's likeness until we understand both of these aspects of Paul's answer. So let's begin with the first, that peace is not something that we achieve. Peace is a gift of God. When Paul talks about the relationship between Jesus and peace, he tends to focus not so much on how Jesus himself experienced peace, but rather how Jesus was God's means of granting peace to us. In Colossians chapter 1, for instance, he says that it was through Christ that God reconciled the world to himself, making peace, Paul says, through the blood of the cross. And then he says something similar in Romans chapter 5. After saying that Jesus was delivered over to death for our sins and raised for our justification, Paul goes on to say, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. In both of these passages, Paul is announcing that through his death on the cross, Christ has actually achieved a peace that we could never achieve for ourselves. For prior to Christ's death, as he says in Romans, we were not at peace with God. In fact, we were God's enemies. But now, through Christ's death and resurrection, we have already been reconciled to God. We are no longer in conflict with God. We are, Paul says, at peace. And it's easy to forget that. It's easy to start feeling that God is distant or that he's angry with us or ashamed of us. And that's why Paul has to continually remind these early Christians to whom he writes of this fact that he's already told them, but he must remind them of again, that they do not have to achieve peace with God, that they already possess it as a gift. Because evidently they tended to forget that. But Paul doesn't stop there. The peace that Christ achieved for us isn't just peace with God, it's also peace with one another. And this is a main theme in his letter to the Ephesians. There, he's discussing the relationship between two groups, two ethnic groups, Jews and Gentiles, a relationship that historically had been one of enmity and suspicion and exclusion. But now, because of Christ, Paul says, that is no longer the case. For Christ himself, Paul says, is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. So peace is not something that we achieve. Peace is a gift, something that Jesus Christ has achieved for us. As he himself says in the Gospel of John, peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. But peace isn't just a gift for Paul. Peace is also something that we as Christians are called to cultivate in our lives with one another. Peace is a gift, yes, but peace is also a way of life. 
Now, perhaps it goes without saying that peace seems to be in rare supply these days. We are a nation divided into tribes, political tribes, ideological tribes. Social scientists say that the levels of hostility and conflict between different cultural and political groups in the United States are higher than they have been for decades. And I'm sure none of this is news to you. The evidence is all around us. The anger and the resentment, the fear and the mutual condemnations. It's in the news, it's on our social media feeds. It even finds its way into our relationships with family and friends. And unfortunately, the church is not immune to all of this. Very often, too often, the same hostilities and divisions that plague our country are present even within our church communities. So what lessons can we learn from Paul? What does he teach us about peace as a way of life? Well, I'd like to briefly highlight three lessons that we learn from Paul. The first is that we should prioritize peace with others over our individual rights. Now, this is hard advice for all of us, but especially us American Christians. We put a lot of emphasis on our personal and civic liberties, our individual rights. And politically speaking, we have good reason for doing so. But Paul regularly tells early Christians that they should give up their rights. They're, they should give up their own prerogatives for the sake of peace with one another. And to the Philippians, he says that they should, in humility and after the pattern of Jesus, count others' interests as more important and significant than their own. And when he writes to the Christians in Rome who are having this conflict about whether eating meat sacrificed to idols is permissible or not, Paul says that those who are stronger in their faith and who have right and liberty to eat as they want, that they should give up those rights and liberties for the sake of those who are weaker in the faith. The Christians may have rights, but for Paul, they must also learn to give them up so that, as he says in Ephesians chapter 4, they may maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So that's one way to live at peace, make peace of greater importance than the ability to exercise your individual rights. The second strategy we learn from Paul is to speak truth to one another in love. And sometimes the way that we maintain peace with the people we love is simply by avoiding certain subjects. And, you know, if you think of peace as simply the absence of conflict, then that makes sense. If your goal is simply not to fight, then sometimes the best strategy is just to avoid the topics that you know are going to cause an argument. But remember, the peace that Paul has in mind isn't just the absence of conflict. And he doesn't counsel Christians to avoid disagreement. Rather, he counsels them to do what he himself does in his letters, to speak truth to one another, even when tr that truth is hard. Now, of course, when I say speak the truth, I don't simply mean that we should be vocal in our opinions. There is a particular truth that Paul has in mind when he talks about speaking the truth to one another. And it has little to do with the things on which we often disagree. The truth Paul has in mind is the truth of the gospel, the truth about who Christ is and what he has done 
and what that means for us now about who we are and how we should live. As he says in Colossians 3, verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. That is the truth that we ought to speak to one another as we seek to live in peace. And as we speak the truth, it's important to remember one other thing that Paul says, which is that our speech must be joined to love. Speaking the truth in love furthers peace. Speaking the truth without love often destroys it. As the great Texan theologian Stanley Hauerwas says, the truth will often hurt, but that doesn't mean hurting someone is an indication of speaking the truth. To be truthful doesn't mean that we must say what needs to be said bluntly. Just the opposite is often the case. We must say what needs to be said in such a manner that it can be received. So that's another way in which we can live into the peace that Christ has won for us, to speak the truth to one another in love. And the last and maybe the most important way that Paul helps us is by telling us to forgive one another. Now, forgiveness is one of the most important and really one of the most characteristically Christian acts that we can engage in. And without forgiveness, peace is impossible. Remember, forgiveness is the basis for our peace with God. And as those who have been forgiven, Jesus makes it abundantly clear that we have a duty to forgive. And Paul, too, regularly commends Christians to forgive one another as they seek to live in peace. He tells the Romans, for instance, that they should, as far as it depends on them, live at peace with everyone, and that in order to do that, that they must refuse to seek vengeance, that they must forgive. And likewise, he tells the Colossians to bear with each other, and if one has a complaint against another, forgive each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. Now, for many of us, forgiveness is a daily task of giving grace to those who wrong us in many and small ways and sometimes larger ways. But sometimes the, the forgiveness that leads to peace, sometimes it can be quite dramatic. In 1994, the country of Rwanda was torn apart for 100 days as members of one ethnic tribe rose up in violence against their neighbors from another ethnic tribe. And at the end of that 100 days, 500,000 people were dead. And when this devastation was over, there were so many people guilty of murder and crimes that the prisons simply could not contain them. And there were so many victims that the two groups, the wrongdoers and the wronged, could not be permanently separated from one another. And so after several years, the government working with the church began to reintroduce people who had participated in the genocide back into the villages and communities where the family members of their victims still lived. There are a lot of incredible stories of forgiveness from that time. But let me just mention one as an example. The story of Godfwad and Evasta. Uh, during the genocide, Godfwad attacked Evasta and her family and burned down her house. Years later, however, 
after working with an organization and with a pastor, he decided to ask for her forgiveness. And Avasta chose to forgive him. I used to hate him, she said. When he came to my house and knelt down before me and asked for forgiveness, I was moved by his sincerity. Now, if I cry for help, he comes to rescue me. When I face any issue, I call him. To live at peace with those with whom you were once at odds. To depend on one another and flourish together like Godfad and Ivasta now do, that is shalom. That is the gift of peace that we have received in Christ. And that is how we are called to love and to live with one another today.